In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 16th Sunday after Pentecost, and we are at the beginning of Matthew chapter 20. If you were uh, looking very closely, you'll realize that last week we ended chapter 18, and uh, now we've jumped to chapter 20. Chapter 19 is uh, synoptic, that is, it's uh, basically the same as Mark chapter 10, and so uh, next year when we're in lectionary cycle B and we're going through Mark's gospel, we'll be spending some time in chapter 10 and so reading some of these uh, lessons that are from chapter 19. So uh, we have to make choices because we can't uh, possibly uh, cover all of Matthew's gospel and the Sundays that we have remaining. So in 19, the thing that we really need to know um, is that Jesus moved. And you know that when Jesus travels, there's a change of theme in the gospel. He's traveled now away from Galilee. Most of these last several chapters, he's been in the region of Galilee. You remember he's been going back and forth across the lake and he's been ministering to the towns and the people around the lake. Uh, He went briefly to Tyre and Sidon along the Mediterranean coast. But now he's traveled south and he's gone uh, to the uh, Judean wilderness on the other side of the Jordan River. That means the other side of Jerusalem. This is a really important spot in geography of the Holy Land. You remember that this is where Moses stopped. It's where Joshua started his ministry. Uh, You'll remember that this is the place where John the Baptist was baptizing the crowds. So Jesus is standing in the place of Moses and of Joshua, and we now understand that the leading of the people into the promised land is a figure, it's a type, it's a foreshadowing of him leading us into the promised land of the kingdom of God. We're not led into a geography, we're not led into a place on the map, we're led into the the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is reminding us that this is what God has done through Moses and Joshua by standing on that other side of the Jordan. And now he's ready to go in uh, to cross the Jordan. You remember that he goes through then Jericho and he follows that trail and he goes up uh, to Jerusalem finally to enter in triumphantly and to die there. So we're poised and we're ready for that action to take place. And while he's there... As he gets to the side of the river Jordan, he's asked uh, several very difficult questions. He's asked about divorce, and he's also asked about uh, how it is that we're supposed to follow the commandments of God. And it's here that the rich young ruler, the rich young man, comes and asks him, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to, to do the commandments, right? To follow the commandments. He doesn't say, Say a prayer. He doesn't say uh, any of these other things. He says, do what's righteous before God. And the rich young man says, I have done these things. And he says, great, now sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the rich young man, for a time anyways, goes away, doesn't he? Uh, This is uh, more than what he was expecting to hear. This makes the apostles really uh, kind of destitute. They say, well, then who can enter into the kingdom of God with this standard of living? Who is able to enter into the kingdom? And Jesus says, with the God, all things are possible. In other words, it's the Lord who's going to lead you into the kingdom of God. He's the one that's going to bring you in through his righteousness. And so then he tells the story uh, that we have here today, this parable about the vineyard owner, about these workers, these laborers in the vineyard. 
Uh, We're getting again this understanding of the relationship between this God who saves and those who follow him. Uh, Because he's not going to take us in unwillingly. The Lord is not going to bring us into the kingdom of God against our will. He's not going to force us. He's inviting us into the kingdom. And the question is, how is it that we're going to accept that invitation? What kind of an attitude are we going to have in acceptance? And so we get this parable of this uh, master of the house, this vineyard owner, who uh, hires these day laborers. And so uh, we can see already a kind of a parallel with some of these other uh, vineyard or agrarian type of metaphors or allegories that he's used before. Uh, you remember the parable of the soils that we had several weeks ago and the different types of soils were equated to the different uh, kinds of hearts that we might have, right? A hard heart or a soft heart that's able to receive the seed of God. But here the toiling and the labor uh, isn't about our the condition of our hearts as much as it's about our attitude and how it is that we follow in obedience and receive the work that God has given us to do. So it's a little bit less about this inward state of the heart and a little bit more about this uh, response, the, the behavior that we have in responding to God. And so we get these laborers who come in at different seasons of the day, and the fathers are very much in agreement about this. They say that we really should be reading this in two ways. So we're going to see uh, a double stacking of ideas. And indeed, the fathers will say, you can stack as many ideas on top of another to interpret Scripture as long as they don't disagree with one another. So we're always looking for deeper and more complex meaning in Scripture. We just can't make it disagree with itself. So the two ways that they suggest that we interpret these uh, times of day that the laborers come is first, uh, the seasons of life. Some of us receive the Lord and we receive this commission from Him in baptism uh, as infants. Some of us receive it in childhood. Some of us receive it in the the bloom of maturity. And some of us uh, at old age before death, uh, we acknowledge the Lord and we receive Him into our hearts and we agree to be obedient to Him in baptism. And so uh, it's very easy for those that are uh, baptized as infants or as young children to walk their lives in accordance with God's will and to expect that uh, then they'll receive some greater blessing than those who are baptized at the point of death. And and, and often we'll hear this kind of conversation, uh, will the Lord really uh, grant salvation to those that wait until their deathbed to acknowledge Him and to receive Him? And this parable seems to answer that question very clearly clearly, right? It's not about them. It's about the generosity of God. So we're asking the wrong question. Again, they say that there's another way to read this, and that is to see the the strata or the generations of salvation. To see these generations of salvation, that is uh, Noah and Abraham, to see the covenant with, with Abraham and then with Israel and the covenant that he has with David, and to see the covenant finally that comes to uh, the Gentiles through Christ. And to see that it's very easy for uh, those who have come before to say, oh, this new group, who do they think they are? The covenant was made with us. Uh, We have received this covenant. And so to become very um, uh, prideful about that reception uh, of those generations that have gone before. 
So we can see it as the, the generations of a person's life, of these ages of life. We can see it as these covenants that have come before Christ and the one that's offered to the Gentiles. The, the real heart of it is the condition of the laborers and how it is that the laborers respond to other laborers. So this is as much about how it is that we respond to God as how we respond to one another. What do we uh, do when we look at one another? Do we start to have pride... Do we start to have pride for the gift that God gave us and start to think that we deserve it, so much so that we can be judgmental about the gift that God gives to others? And the Lord is very clear about this. Number one, you didn't do anything to deserve this gift. You were deserving of death. It's because of God's graciousness and love that you got salvation in the first place. You did nothing to earn it, so you can't be proud of getting it. And even more so, if your heart is uh, fixed in judgment towards your neighbor, you haven't really received that gift in the first place. You haven't really understood that this is a free gift out of the generosity of the nature of God. And so now we have to, to look at some other examples of that in the scriptures. And the, the, maybe the easiest example of this kind of attitude is uh, with the prophet Jonah. Here's a prophet I can relate to. Huh? I know I may be the only one here that can really relate to Jonah. So you'll just have to bear with me for the next few minutes. Uh, Jonah thought that he and the nation of Israel deserved better than what they were getting. Really quickly, you'll uh, want to remember your salvation history. You'll remember that uh, Adam uh, is uh, the great-great-grandfather of Noah, and that Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And when they come off of the ark, they all have children. And Shem is the great-great-grandfather of Abram. And you'll remember that Abram is the one that has the covenant with God, and Abram has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob. And then Jacob is the one that wrestles with the Lord for the blessing, right? He's the one that wouldn't give up. He's the one that is taking everything he can from Esau or whoever's got it to receive the blessings of the Lord. And when he's wrestling with the Lord, demanding that blessing, the Lord calls him Israel. You remember that Israel has 12 sons and, and one of them, Joseph, gets sold into slavery in Egypt. And so they all end up being in Egypt because of the great famine. And you remember that those 12 sons of Israel uh, are so enriched by God that they become tribes. They have so many children and grandchildren that they're tribes and they're in this persecution in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. They're crying out for justice from God. And finally you remember that Moses leads them as a tribe, as a nation of Israel out of Egypt and finally uh, Joshua into the promised land. And once they're in the promised land they're led by judges. Until they're finally given a king, they're given Saul as their king, who uh, does not become obedient to God, and David replaces him. You remember that David has a son, Solomon, who was righteous at the beginning. He started well, and he did not end well. So badly, you'll remember, that it's Rehoboam, his son, that is a fool, and it's Rehoboam's foolishness that leads to the division of the kingdom of Israel. Rehoboam is uh, the king over the highest point of Israel. Their borders are the largest, they're the wealthiest, they're the most successful. And right at the peak of their power, Rehoboam's foolishness leads to civil war. And civil war divides that great kingdom of Israel into a northern kingdom, still called Israel, but into a southern kingdom that is called uh, Judah. And it's the southern kingdom of Judah that has Jerusalem and the temple. 
that northern kingdom of Israel falls first. The Assyrians that are even north of them are uh, one of the most brutal and powerful um, empires of the day, and they're very close to Israel. Their capital is Nineveh. They've been leading brutal raids against the kingdom of Israel for generations, and they've been destroying all their cities and taking their women and children. And this is where uh, Jonah starts his ministry with this uh, brutal oppression by the Assyrians that in just a generation is going to lead to them being really wiped out and being turned into Samaria. They become the Samaritans in that region. And so he's right on the precipice of seeing his people uh, almost totally written off of the map and replaced with this Syrian empire. And in the midst of that uh, turmoil and, and, and devastation, the Lord says, Go to the heart of your enemy, Go to the Ninevites, these people that have been persecuting and killing your people, and preach salvation and repentance to them. And Jonah says, no way. (laughs) Right? Those people? I don't wish them well. I don't hope that they repent. I want them to die in their sins. Right? Just like Hamlet and Claudius and Laertes, right? I want him to die in his sins. I don't want him to repent and get a chance of getting into heaven after what he's done. And so finally you remember the story of the whale and he finally gets spit on the land and he ends up in Nineveh and he preaches the gospel of the Lord faithfully. And just as he thought, the Ninevites do what? They repent. They repent. And even worse than that, God forgives them. And now he says, go ahead and kill me. I just want to die. Like the worst thing that's happened, you're going to let these people off the hook with this so-called forgiveness of yours because you love them, right? I'm angry, so angry that I could die. And so the Lord gives him this plant and he destroys it with the worm that is the same worm that has been eating in the heart of Jonah and maybe in us today. The worm of vengeance. The worm of comeuppance. The worm of anger and pride and resentment. And it eats so much of our happiness and it eats so much of our joy that's all that's left is that bitterness and that desire to die. And the Lord reminds Jonah. He says, I love the Ninevites. And it's out of my love that I forgive them. The same love that I have for you, I have for them. And this is the same place that St. Paul has to get to with the Gentiles. Same thing. St. Paul is deep into his Jewish faith. He is deep and steeped into the knowledge that they are the chosen people of God and these Gentiles need to be just washed away. The Greeks had been beating up on the Jews for hundreds of years. They had desecrated the temple. They had desecrated the the people of Judah with their pagan ways. They were a people that were living uh, some of the most horrid and ruthless and despicable kinds of lives 
with all kinds of, of horrible sexual immoral practices and thievery and slavery and greed and war and torture. And they were the low of the low in the mind of, of the Jews and in the mind of St. Paul. And these are the people that the Lord leads him to preach the gospel to? It takes a little bit to get St. Paul to that place. He has to go blind. He has to go and suffer. He has to go through all kinds of trials before he finally understands the love of God and that the Lord loves all people of all of the world and his desire is to see them to repent and to be restored to him. And St. Paul says, I'm ready to die. I want to go. The only reason that I can see that I'm here is so that I can minister to you. That's the final place that St. Paul gets to. A total reversal of where Jonah is. St. Paul is ready to die because he feels that he's finished everything that God has for him to do except for this one thing to minister to and to love the people that had been his enemies because of God's love for them. He had so been transformed by the love that God had for him that he had no choice but to share it with the Gentiles in Philippi. It's easy to forget. It's easy to forget what the Lord has done for us and to start thinking, I deserve it. I'm pretty great. I'm not as bad as those people. And the world will tell you that all day long. People at work, people in the store, well, you're not as bad as that guy. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Yeah, we are. We're all deserving of death. And the love that we have from God is out of His compassion and His mercy and His grace. You know, still today, the people of Syria remember Jonah and a yearly fast. Even before Lent starts, they fast for three days, still today, the Syrians. And remember Jonah and his sacrifice for their people. May we fast. May we remember the sacrifice that's been made for us by generation after generation that's come before to preach the gospel and to bring us to this place today to acknowledge the love that the Lord has for us and to show us how to love our neighbor as ourselves and as we have first been loved.